there's a conversation about finally demolishing McKee's Row because McKee's Row is unsightly. Now we have photographs of McKee's Row and it's in perfectly fine condition, but it's wooden and it's occupied by African-Americans. And so McKee's Row is demolished. Now it's white, white owned, right? It's white owned. It's demolished and now you have an open space. What do we do with this vacant spot? Conversations hover for a few months around establishing a white school. Because Charlottesville needs yet another white school. No, they don't, <laughs> right? So, um, and it's uh, in those moments then that Paul McIntyre, who has been a major beneficiary to the University of Virginia and to Charlottesville in a lot of different ways, who has funded um, a golf course, a white-only golf course that is McIntyre Park, McIntyre School, the McIntyre School of Business, right? McIntyre um, is also the donor of the four monuments. So in 1920, he steps in and says, well, wait a second, well, I'll just give you a monument, right? And so that's the source, the vacant site, the cleared McKee's Row with a conversation about a white school. The site's not cleared for the monument, right? The monument fills in an already cleared site. And months before this monument is unveiled, the KKK in 1921 of that summer have a meeting. So it's unveiling in October. They're meeting in August in the courthouse. The KKK is meeting in the courthouse. And they declare that law and order must prevail. All undesirables must leave town. The eye of the unknown has been and is constantly observing. We see all. We hear all. We know all. Now, this is a bulletin that's posted all over Charlottesville inviting people to come to the KKK speeches that are being held in the courthouse three months before this monument is unveiled. They also, it's also an invitation. It's a recruiting event. They invite any 100% white, native-born American man who holds to the tenets of the Christian religion, free schools, free speech, free press, law enforcement, liberty, and white supremacy. And so if you're willing to and aligned with all of those initiatives, you're welcome, and you meet, you, you meet the rules, you're welcome to join the KKK, right? Now, in the midst of all of the other structures of disenfranchisement, which in the late 19th and early 20th century are already at play in Charlottesville, imagine what it means as an African-American to read a bulletin on the side of a building that says, we see all, we hear all, we know all. Why do the KKK wear hoods? It's a strategic move to mask their own identity so that you as an African-American have no idea who's in the KKK and who's not. Every white man then becomes the KKK for you. It's the use of costume to exhibit terror in everyday life. And so the fear that a woman, an enslaved woman, would have at the University of Virginia 
navigating that landscape has not changed. Into the early 20th century, it is still a landscape of terror. And then two months later, this monument is unveiled. Let's go take a look at it. Okay, so once again, the subject of this monument, of course, is Stonewall Jackson, the Civil War leader. But I want to divert our eyes from the monument to the pedestal. Look at the pedestal for a moment. Who are the figures on the crest of the pediment? Two white people, yes. One male and one female. She is Faith and he is valor. They are both winged, which means they're allegorical ideals. What is he holding? The shield of the battle flag of the Confederacy. In the racial hierarchy that we've been teaching at the University of Virginia through the late 19th and early 20th centuries, that informs our medical practices, that informs our education in the classrooms, that supposition of a racial hierarchy has at the very top Aryans. These two figures are Aryans. Installed in the 1920s, in 1924, the codes that substantiate the apartheid regime of South Africa are based on scholars who come to the American South to study American race law in the American South. This has all been revealed recently in a Princeton University Press book entitled Hitler's American Model. Hitler and the Nuremberg Codes are inspired by the landscape you've just traversed and the legal and social politics that are at play and that animate this place through the late 19th and early 20th centuries. The fact that we have Aryan figures on a monument in a public space is not an accident. This is the intentional and strategic dislocation of African-Americans, real people, and their replacement by idealized, perfected white people. And so, when Charlottesville saw a series of events that brought the KKK unhooded, courageous and bold, Many of Charlottesville's white residents were astounded, shocked. How could these people from the outside invade our peaceable city? But what that fails to recognize is that for our African-American neighbors, this is yet one more eruption of a landscape of white supremacy and racialized marginalization that has been true for centuries. For the African American in Charlottesville, this is just one more chapter. Here it is again, no surprise. And so those of us that love Charlottesville and have loved Charlottesville tend to view that through pretty white eyes. And that isolation is a result of the segregation 
that's been inscribed in our landscape for centuries and that shape our friend networks and our social structures and our churches. And adopting that framework of celebrating the peaceable city of Charlottesville and not recognizing the legacy of white supremacy and marginalization that's been inscribed in this landscape for centuries is simply not hearing my neighbor. It's choosing deafness. And for us to jump too quickly to a language of reconciliation fails, fails the test of truth. We can't begin to have a conversation about reconciliation until we begin to have a serious conversation about truth-telling. And that's why we as Christians are particularly responsible. If we claim to be truth-tellers, we must own this truth. Because this is who we are. This is the legacy that we've inherited. And the future of the city of Charlottesville lies on our shoulders collectively, white and black. But we can only lock arms with our black neighbors until we actually know them and know their stories. There will be no reconciliation while Charlottesville remains segregated. Because that landscape of segregation is today. That landscape of isolation and marginalization is still today. Until we do that work, table reconciliation. It's not an option.